Let's go to our Heavenly Father again, this time to bring the needs and cares of a heavy and fallen world uh, to Him. Father in heaven, um, but what, a, what a world it is, Father. Um, we pray, uh, uh, God, um, because we aren't in control. We, we pray, Father, because we are weak. We pray, Father, because uh, we know we have so little. We pray because we know all of the opposite is true about you. We pray because we know that you are in control. We pray that you, we know, we know that you are strong. We pray because we know that you have so much. And Father, we pray first and foremost this morning for your word. And we pray that it would go. We pray that it would go out among the nations and it would flourish and it would take root and that it would grow and that it would bear seed and it would multiply wherever it takes root to the ends of the earth. And Father, we pray even now that in some of the hardest places, in some of the darkest places, some of the places where those who have proclaimed themselves enemies of your gospel and are actively trying to snip off the flowering buds before it can go to seed, that they would find their efforts futile because your gospel goes to seed way too quickly. Father, we pray we pray, Father, for your gospel to flourish in places like Saudi Arabia where it is illegal to convert from Islam. Legal to convert to Islam, but illegal to convert from Islam. But we pray, Father, that your gospel would take root and that the fear of God would be so much stronger than the fear of any man. And that you would build your church in Rijia. And you would build your church even in Mecca. And that you would strengthen your saints that we know are even there, even in those places now. Would you encourage them? Give them strength. Let them know that you are the one who holds the future. Remind them of these dear truths. And in the confidence that you are God and no other, make them bold in the midst of a difficult and dark place. Father, would your gospel, would your gospel go out in Russia right now? No, Father, maybe it's not as difficult to proclaim the gospel in Russia. 
But Father, with the tides of war so strong there, we pray, Father, for the gospel of peace to go out and to capture the hearts and minds of corrupt men and women that they might fall in love with a Savior who is just and right. And that in that transformation, there might be peace. Peace of heart, peace with God, and maybe even peace among men. You are certainly capable. We pray that it would be your will. We pray for our fellow saints in Leningrad, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, and across Russia, that you would help them to stand firm. We know very well in this country the temptation to politicize our faith and the temptation to place love of country over love of Christ. But may that not be true of us. May that not be true of our brothers and sisters in Russia but they may they proclaim Jesus and him alone and his gospel and his gospel alone, come what may. Whether it upsets the loyalists in Russia or whether it upsets the dissenters, may they be faithful to him alone that on that day, may they hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, make us the saints of gateway, such people, especially as we head into a contentious political season, and it seems like we are in a never-ending contentious political season. May our heart be to please our Savior and not the pundits on Twitter who would promote the D or the R or whatever other party or affiliation but may we be champions of righteousness come what may. May we be the type of people who are willing to take fire wherever the fire comes from simply because the love of God compels us to speak truthfully even when the truth is offensive to those we wish were our allies. May we see our allies as Christ and his saints and not the political machinery of a fallen world. Father, as we are concerned about the gospel and the gospel above all, may we be people who hear your word this morning and may I be a person who preaches your word this morning. That is, may we do so faithfully and may we set aside any error. Excuse us in any hearing errors or speaking errors and let your truth shine forth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a phone. You can turn there, click there, swipe there, tap there. If you don't have any of those, there's probably a physical Bible on the seat in front of you. You can use that, or you can listen. Up to you. We're flexible here. But I do like people to, to have it open in front of you because we believe that the Word of God is 
living and breathing and important. It shapes us. It convicts us. It, and, and whatever I say that conforms to God's Word is important. And whatever I say that doesn't conform to God's Word is at best, eh, and at worst, something you should absolutely throw in the garbage. So, it matters. Uh, turn with me then, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're in a series here at Gateway on the book of 1 Samuel. And so we're a little ways into it. And I'll try to recap that briefly because I know we have a lot of new faces here this morning. But only very briefly. I think you'll get what you need to get this morning. And then I would just encourage you to, you know, if you're interested, back up and read the book. It's not that long. But I'm going to only be in the first 15 verses of this chapter this morning. So let me read these. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also, that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Bikmash, to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose 
and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. In 1992, a man named uh, Gary Chapman published a book that, that sold better than publishers expected, so they kept it going, they kept it in circulation, and its influence grew until from, it took a while, but from 2009 until 2013, it was a New York Times bestseller. That book, uh, you may have heard of it, The Five Love Languages, has been particularly influential in Christian circles. And the basic premise of the book is that different people express love in different ways, and that different people experience love in different ways. That is, they might not get the hint that someone is trying to express love to them if that person isn't speaking their language, so to speak. I'm not a huge advocate for this book. I'm not, I'm not telling you to go out and read it. Uh, biblical counselor David Powelson, I think, makes a very good observation and criticism. And if I could broadly paraphrase it, is that, it, that an unhealthy obsession with love languages could, could lead us to forget our obligation to surrender our wants with a Christ-like humility. But, but Chapman, I think, does remind us of a good point, something that should probably be obvious, but we forget it too easily, that sometimes what you intend as love doesn't feel like love. Sometimes what you intend as honor doesn't feel like honor. Sometimes what you intend as appreciation doesn't feel like appreciation. And there are acts that we do for others, and sometimes there are things that maybe we're obligated to do for others, and if we do them on our own terms or in our own way, or the way that we think is good, or worse in just any which way we feel, those things might not have the intended impact at all. Of course, as humans, like I said, we, we need a big dose of humility. We usually aren't in the position to make absolute demands. And so if someone is trying to honor us, we should probably try to just appreciate the fact that they're trying to honor us. But it does matter, doesn't it? And it matters all the more if the other person is in a position to make demands or even absolute demands. I mean, imagine that your boss says that they like their work done a certain way and you insist on doing the work a different way because that's the way you like to do the work. You probably have or have had that coworker. We're looking at the first 15 verses of 1 Samuel 13 this morning. A passage divides neatly between an attack, an assembly, and an assumption. Uh, an attack an assembly, and an assumption. And what this passage teaches us through these three little vignettes, these three little snapshots, is that we must follow God on His terms or we cannot follow God at all. So stick with me here a second. Here's the background. So we've got a lot of new faces this morning. We picked this up uh, just now in 13. There's a little bit of a backstory. We started this series in chapter 8 because we actually covered the first seven chapters a couple years ago. And in chapter 8, Israel demanded a king. They'd existed for several centuries as a bona fide nation without a king, without a central ruler. They'd had regional, semi-national judges, who would bring religious reforms and, and freedom from political oppression. 
And those two things were often very tightly connected uh, because God, the one true God, Yahweh, often allowed the Israelites to be oppressed by foreign powers when they rebelled against him. I say rebelled because Yahweh, God, was supposed to be their king. That's why they didn't have one at first. But more often than not, like the author of the book called Judges in the Bible would write, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in 1 Samuel 8, that sort of comes to a head when the people ratified their decision to reject God as their king. And they chose to have a king like all the other nations had a king. Ammon had a king. Moab had a king. The Philistines had several kings. Adam had a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations had to go out and fight their wars and win their battles for them and be their champion and be their savior. And they forgot that it was God who had always been their savior. But God didn't let them just pick their own king. They, they might have rejected him, but he didn't reject them. And so he chooses a king for them, and he puts stipulations on, on how the kingship should operate, how the king should really operate more like a, a prince underneath God's ultimate kingship, and that God's prophets really, in, in many ways, should have the greater authority. Not that the prophets themselves have any authority, but in that the prophets speak for God, it allowed God to be the ultimate authority over the king. And God chooses this man named Saul from the smallest tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And as you read through these chapters, if you do so carefully, you're not quite sure what to make of Saul. He's not clearly the hero. He's not clearly the bad guy. There are things about him that make us uneasy. He seems hesitant at first and later afraid to accept that God has made him king. He seems sort of spiritually dense at times. And then in chapter 11, it's as if all of a sudden he's exactly the kind of man God loves to use in cooperation with his purposes. And God does just that. God uses Saul to rescue his people from this cruel oppressor, the king of Ammon. And the people worship God for his goodness in granting victory through his king. It's really the first time that Saul has acted like a king. And the nation responds and they, they accept him as a king. And so in chapter 12, Samuel, the prophet, the judge, reminds the people of what they've done in asking for a king, reminding them that, it, that it's rebellion against God. They, they have sinned in doing so. That's what rebellion is. And what they do next matters. Selma reminds them that God is faithful even when they are unfaithful. But if they deny him, if they completely walk away from them, keep completely walk away from God, well, that's a different story. And so Samuel gives them both hope and a warning and urges them to follow the Lord. Urges them, please follow the Lord. And there's a sense in chapter 12 that the nation of Israel is sort of on a precipice between life and death. 
fact, we said last week that it's really the very precipice that each of us sits on. And so here we are in, in, in lucky chapter 13, waiting to see how Israel and, and Israel's king will begin to respond to this precipice that they've been set on in chapter 12. Are they going to choose life or are they going to choose death? Are they going to choose to follow God or are they going to choose to reject God? Is, 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 what is going to be the outcome of this? Are we going to get the Saul who is, who is afraid to serve God or the, or the Saul who seems like the man who wants to serve God, who seems like everything you would want in a faithful servant of God? And judging by what we just read, things are not going to go well. But, but why? And those, well, that's an interesting question. So, so let's, let's dig in there. And, and we, we kick off this, this, this chapter, chapter 13, with well, what's pretty typical language about age and length of reign that we often see in the Bible and, and frankly, other literature of this time period from other nations. When you talk about kings, the king took, took ownership, they're, they're this age, they reigned this long, that's just boilerplate language. But then we get this note that Saul took together 3,000 soldiers, which he divides between himself and his son Jonathan. Saul is at Michmash. That city, by the way, it still exists, or at least has been resettled at least once since and retained its ancient name. You could visit it if you want to go to the West Bank. Mukmas in Arabic. He's got 2,000 soldiers. And Jonathan is at Gebeah of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. I said that before. Um, this is an oversimplification. If you're, if, you're, if you're new, if you're new to this, you can think of Israel's 12 tribes as sort of, especially in this period, as sort of like one part very extended family and one part territory or state or province, if you want to think of it like that. Sort of, sort of a hybrid between those two ideas. Gibeah was, was Saul's hometown. And it's already come up several points in this, this book already. Saul sends the rest of the men home, which seems to mean that there were a lot more fighters, a lot more soldiers who were really passionate. Maybe after that big battle that Saul had just won against the kingdom of Ammon, they, they are passionate about, they are loyal, they are, they are they're now, they are like, wow, we've got a nation, we've got a king, we are, we are patriots, and let, let's rally around Saul, and let's, let's go do some, some butt-kicking, you know, and, and Saul's like, no, we've got enough, we're, we're going to send you guys home. And, and so you get the sense that Saul is popular now. He's having to turn people away, and he thinks that 3,000 soldiers is plenty. What are they going to be fighting for? Well, Israel continues to have enemies. If you've read the book, if you've read the book that comes before this, Judges, lots of enemies, and especially the Philistines. And it seems like after his victory over Ammon in chapter 11, Saul is feeling very confident that he can help Israel finish the job of being free from Philistine oppression. And then all of a sudden we read in verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. Well, that's just, that was quick. That was just one sentence over and done. 
And, and that's not just an interesting historical note. We might read that and be like, okay, that's just kind of a little boring war fact. But that's more than just an interesting historical note. See, what's said and what's not said is just as important. What's interesting about this, consider that Geba was about exactly as far away from Gebeah as it was from Michmash. So it's about equidistant. Yet it was Jonathan with the smaller army that attacked and defeated the Philistines. So where was Saul? It makes you wonder. Saul's got 2,000 soldiers. He's the same distance away. He's out of the picture. And yet, then in verse 4, who gets the credit? Saul blows the trumpet. He blows the trumpet throughout the land. Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel hears that Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That's interesting. Jonathan defeats the garrison of the Philistines with the smaller army, even though Saul is the same distance away with the bigger army. But what all the rest of the nation hears is that Saul has had a major victory. Now, maybe Jonathan attacked at Saul's, at Saul's direction. That's possible. Maybe even likely. But why wasn't the king, the exact person that the Israelites wanted expressly to fight their battles, fighting their battles? Why was the one with the bigger armies staying away? But also, what was this town called Geba? It says there's a Philistine garrison there, this little town called Geba, a military outpost. Where have we heard that before? So much happens at the end of chapter 10, and then in chapter 11 and chapter 12, and for us it's been several weeks, so I I wouldn't blame you for losing sight of what's happened all the way back there, but but take a moment, let's take a moment and refresh your memory, and I'm just going to read to you eight verses from the beginning of chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. You can turn there if you want. You don't need to. This is when Samuel anoints Saul to be king. It's when Samuel tells Saul that he is the one that God has chosen to be king. And we read there in the beginning of chapter 10, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his Saul's head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care of the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go down there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you'll accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, 
And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Those verses are really important, especially those last two. When the prophet Samuel told Saul he would be king, he was given several signs, three signs, that proofs that what Samuel was telling him was going to come to pass. Because imagine you're a little farmer, and you're, you're out, you're looking for your lost donkeys all over the place. That's all, all you've known, you're a farmer. And all of a sudden, this prophet tells you you're going to be king. You're not going to believe it. And so Samuel says, look, trust me, it's going to happen. And here's the proof. You're going to see three signs today. You couldn't possibly have known were going to happen. Three things I couldn't possibly have known to happen, but God has revealed them to me. These three things are going to happen in sequential order. You're going to see them, and you're going to know that God is calling you to be the king. And when that happens... When that final sign happens, Saul, you're going to travel down to Gebeah of God, Gebeah Elohim. So he's distinguishing it from Gebeah of Benjamin. So they're different cities, Saul's hometown, where there would be a Philistine outpost. And when he got there, Samuel says that Saul would meet some other prophets. When he met those prophets, Saul would begin to prophesy. And after that happened, Saul, or Samuel told Saul, do whatever your hand finds to do. And we said a couple weeks ago, when we looked at that passage, that that phrase, do whatever your hand finds to do, seemed to have been a, a Hebrew expression that had military overtones. It was as if Samuel was saying, after all this proof has been shown to you, that God was really choosing you to be the deliverer of his people, and that sign takes place in the place where there is an outpost of the enemy of God's people, the people who are oppressing you. Take care of business, Saul. But what did he do? He went home. He didn't do anything at Gebeah Elohim. He went home. And it was one of those things that when we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 10 that made us wonder, kind of man is Saul. He just didn't seem to get the picture. And if you're thinking that Gebeah sounds a lot like Geba, you're not alone. And I think it's very likely that they're either the same city, it's the, the difference is the difference of a final consonant that can oftentimes be elided in Hebrew, not that that matters, or um, the author of 1 Samuel at least wants us, the readers and hearers, to at least be thinking about these two episodes as being parallel. That the inaction on Saul's part in chapter 10 is being put up against the action of his son, Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 13 by way of contrast. And so here's how I see this, and maybe this helps you to kind of put your, your head around the message of the book and, and, and where I'm trying to, trying to draw these strings together. It's almost like Saul's failure to act in chapter 10 sort of pushed pause on the entire narrative arc of his story, on the way things were laid out to go. 
And Jonathan's attack on Geba in chapter 13 is like pressing resume. All the things, sudden things start back up in motion. Because from chapter 10 to chapter 13, Saul never goes to Gilgal. But as soon as Jonathan attacks that Philistine outpost in chapter 13, Saul gets to Gilgal. This attack has a couple immediate consequences. We read, of course, that Saul gets to Gilgal. We're going to turn our attention there next. We also read, though, that Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And that basically means that the Philistines were really upset and looking for their pound of flesh. They want revenge. So let's, that's, that's the attack. That's what sets up this passage. Let's look at the assembly. The, the, the first four verses are an attack. We're moving the assembly. The people have been called to meet with Saul at Gilgal. And it's a little bit to the east. So if you care, it's a little bit to the east, a few miles to the east. But the question should come to your mind, why is Saul calling all Israel to Gilgal? Well, you say, well, well, Israel became a stench to the Philistines. They're mad. They want their pound of flesh. Okay. But Saul just sent them home in verse 2, right? They already had more men in verse 2. So which is it? Did he need more men in verse 2 and make a foolish decision to send them home? Or does he not need them in verse 4, but he's gotten scared because of the threat? Because otherwise the strategy doesn't make sense. And we might start to wonder, does Saul even know what he's doing? One day it's this, and the next day it's that. And we look at, we, look at what we read in verse 5. It says, The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore and multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth of En. So the Philistines weren't just a little mad. This is crazy mad. This is an enormous army. It's hard to even really make sense of how large these numbers would have been at the time. This is an enormous military force. And that might lead us to think that Saul was wrong at first. Because 3,000 soldiers total does not even compare to 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore. And, and so our first inclination might be, that was foolish, Saul. Good on you for regrouping. But what did God regularly remind his people? Consider what God told his people in Leviticus uh, chapter 26 as they were leaving Egypt and, and preparing to come into the land that we now call Israel. He, he said, if you walk in my statutes and if you observe my commandments and if you do them, then five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That wasn't just hyperbole. You can read from Genesis to 1 Samuel, and you see there was many battles with seemingly impossible odds that Israel won because the victory didn't belong to them. 
as Joshua would one day uh, tell the Israelites, one man of you puts to flight a thousand. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. It's a very human way to think that the, the king with the most horses and the most chariots and the most swords and the most ICBMs wins the battle, but that's not how God has called his people to think. God has called his people to be faithful and to watch him do the impossible. As Moses told the Israelites, most of you know the story, when they, they were pressed with their faces to the Red Sea, and at their backs was the armies of Pharaoh, king of the Egypt, king of Egypt. They had no place to go. And Moses tells the people who are furious and scared at Moses. <coughs> Moses says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Certainly the Israelites could have used a reminder of those truths on that day. Especially because, did you catch it? The, the Philistines encamped at Michmash. That's where Saul had been encamped with his 2,000 soldiers. We don't know what happened, but either Saul took an L at Michmash or he sacrificed the position. And neither is a particularly good look for a newly minted king. So maybe it's no wonder that, that as the Israelites arrive at Gilgal for Saul's assembly, there seems to be more of a disassembly going on. They, they see that they are hard-pressed, the text says in verse 6, and the people lose heart. And they start hiding in caves and cisterns under underground water supplies. Some even hide in tombs. And we, we know that this is not the most faithful period in Israelite history, but but contact with a dead body would have made an Israelite ritually unclean, according to Jewish law. So this is a desperate move. For others, it wasn't desperate enough, and they decided to move out of state. They, they crossed the Jordan River. It's still Israel, but it's an area that didn't get much interaction with Philistines at all. The Israelites were deserting in droves, and those who did stay with Saul were terrified, it, the text says. And so, this is an ironic scene. It's an ironic scene because they were at Gilgal, this, this large, flat area that had been the host of some of the most important assemblies in the history of Israel. And it, it was the site where they had gathered at the end of chapter 11, just a few verses earlier, to celebrate God's victory through Saul over the kingdom of Ammon. Just a few verses earlier, we could read, there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. That's what we read at the end of chapter 11. But then, just a few verses later, in chapter 13, it says that the men who are with 
Saul are terrified. And so the assembly has become a disassembly. Well, I said there's, there's three beats to this passage. There's three vignettes, and there's an attack, there's an assembly, there's, a, there's an assumption. So let's, let's, let's head to that third beat because it's really where everything starts to pull together. I said that there's a sense in which Saul's inaction in chapter 10 was like pushing pause. And Saul's action in chapter 13 is like hitting resume. We'll see what we have in verse 8. So in, in, in chapter 13, verse 8, it says, He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So the seven days appointed by Samuel, that, that can only be the same seven days that Samuel told him about on that day long ago in chapter 10. It's only a few paragraphs for us, but it's probably been a couple years of history that has passed. And it sure seems like Samuel connected Saul taking action against the Philistines to Saul being at Gilgal. And it sure seems like Samuel thought it would have already happened by now. But here we are, after all this time, and King Saul has finally found himself at Gilgal. And so he's waited his seven days. That's what Samuel said to do. In seven days, Samuel would come, and Samuel would offer sacrifices, and, and this is really important, in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel said, after he offered sacrifices, he would show you what you shall do. Speaking to Saul, he would tell Saul what to do. Remember, the prophets, like Samuel, spoke on behalf of God. And so insofar as they spoke faithfully and truthfully, the king was supposed to listen. And in that way, God would be the true king, the ultimate ruler and all would go well for the people. But it's been seven days. Where's Samuel? There is no Samuel. So, verse 9, Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. And many scholars have noted that under scary times like this, it might have made sense to seek the Lord's favor by worshiping him and offering sacrifices. And other scholars have pointed out that, well, that might have been true. The faithful were always able to call on God with or without sacrifices. In fact, Psalm 145, King David wrote, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And Moses had previously taught the people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? That doesn't mean it was wrong to offer sacrifices. Israel's kings and leaders often did it at moments of great importance. It wasn't necessary to offer sacrifices to get God's attention, but that wasn't necessarily wrong. Worshiping God was good. Offering sacrifices was good. Not necessary, but good. And maybe for terrified troops, it would have been a source of courage and comfort to be reminded of the God who had saved them so many times before. But since Saul 
waited for Samuel seven days. Seven days, in fact. It seems like the reason he offered the sacrifice now was an assumption. Maybe two assumptions. The first being that Samuel wasn't coming and everything else that that entailed. But of course, we read in verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And you have to imagine that was an awkward moment. Saul goes out of the camp to meet Samuel. Samuel isn't in the mood for chit-chat. He wants to know exactly why Saul has offered these sacrifices. He already knows. Saul immediately begins to make excuses. He says, everyone was abandoning abandoning me. It was a moment of great disunity. I had to act quickly. I had to be bold. The soldiers were at fault. He says, you didn't come, Samuel. You're at fault. That wasn't exactly true, though, was it? Samuel did come, just maybe a little later in the day than expected. He said, well, you know, Samuel, the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. It was a crisis situation. Destruction and devastation awaited. The situation was at fault. And then Saul gets spiritual. He gets some religion. He says he deliberated the matter. And he came to the conclusion that with the Philistines bearing down, he should have sought the favor of the Lord already, and he hadn't. So although he was reluctant to do so, he forced himself to offer the sacrifice. He didn't want to violate Samuel's instruction, but it was the spiritual thing to do. But it wasn't Samuel's instructions at all that he was violating. Samuel was God's prophet. It wasn't Samuel's instructions. It was God's instructions. So Samuel tells Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. You see, Saul had not only made an assumption about whether or not Samuel was going to show up or not. Saul had made an assumption about how he could please and serve God. When Samuel didn't show up right away, Saul decided he didn't need a prophet. Think about what that actually meant. In the mid to late 1030s B.C., that's about when this is taking place. We think Saul's reign began in the 1030s B.C., so about 3,000 years ago. The New Testament hasn't been written the, the Psalms, the longest book in the Bible, hasn't been written. None of the prophetic books have been written. At most, at most, and there's a lot of debate on this, eight books of the Bible, at most, have been written by this point. There's no printing press. People didn't have copies of the Bible in their hotel nightstands, let alone on a digital device in their pockets. Kings were supposed to write a copy of God's law by hand for their own benefit to study their entire lives it's unclear if that meant all the first five books of the old testament or if it just meant the ten commandments or exactly what that included but in any event no surprise here there's no record of saul actually doing that when he became king and so the access to anything like the bible as god's written word was extremely 
limited. So it was all the more important that the king be dependent on the prophets. They spoke for God. They were God's mouthpieces. That's literally what the Hebrew word for a prophet meant, is a mouthpiece. They gave God's words, God's instructions to God's people. So so here's the upshot. Don't miss this. Saul was effectively saying, I can follow God. I can serve God completely untethered to God's revelation. I don't need God's word. I don't need God's instruction. I'll do what seems right to me and surely God will approve of it because of my good intentions. And the answer is no. We must follow God on His terms or not follow Him at all. Saul's not alone on that, though, is he? We, we too, have a tendency to think that we can follow God on our own terms. We assume that there's no prophet coming. We assume that there is no word. We assume that there is no revelation of God's wishes. No revelation of God's desires that we have to pay attention to. And so we proceed to live our lives the way that we think is best. If God has not revealed himself, then we live our lives any way we please. I spoke of the idea of love languages earlier for for all of its inadequacies, but we do understand the wisdom of the idea, right? If your spouse feels appreciated and cared for when you provide words of affirmation, which is one of the love languages described in the book, then it would be a generous and caring thing to provide that sort of feedback when appropriate. But if you feel cared for and appreciated when you spend quality time with, that per- with another person, that's another love language, it would be a bit unthoughtful to insist on spending lots and lots of quality time with your spouse to show appreciation to him or her just because that's what's valuable to you, right? But we're not speaking of a spouse we're not speaking of a husband or a wife here we're we're speaking about god we're speaking about the king of creation who made you who who knows your beginning he knows your ends he 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 knew the course of your life and how it's going to end before he even created a single star in the sky he he knows the number of the heads on the hairs on your head We're talking about the omnipotent one who has all the power and all the energy for any work. We're talking about the all-wise, all-loving Father of lights. Every good thing you've ever known has come from Him. You owe Him everything. He owes you nothing. That's a little different. He's, He's in a position to make demands he's in a position to say this is who i am this is how you follow me and he has said follow me and worship me 
and I will show myself to you. I will reveal myself to you. You will know me, and I will know you. And anything less than that would be what? Wouldn't it be rebellion? And so Saul finds out the hard way. Samuel tells him that if he had been faithful, God would have made his his dynasty to last forever. But now it, it won't even last to his son, Jonathan. His kingdom is going to be taken away. It's going to be given to another, all because of Saul's disobedience, his rebellion. That's bad. He's losing a major blessing from God. It's never good to lose blessings from God. But there is there's something worse. Look at verse 5. Excuse me, verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Remember what Samuel was supposed to do? Samuel was going to offer sacrifices and tell Saul what to do. As God's prophet, he was going to speak the word of God to Saul. He was going to be the voice of God to him. But he doesn't either. He turns around and leaves. The word of God, the revelation of God, in that moment, departs from Saul's life. The word of God is taken away from Saul. And that is far worse, far more dangerous than losing a kingdom. The revelation of God is available to all of us. God has made himself known. He, he screams it from the heavens. He says in, in, in Psalm 19 that God has made himself known through his created order, but he has also made himself known in his word, and he has spoken. He has not left himself without a revelation. And the former times, the, the, the author of Hebrews says that he spoke in many ways and in many times and in many seasons, but in this last era, uh, era, in this last age, he has spoken to us most completely and most faithfully in a son. A son that in the book of John, the apostle John calls the word of God. Jesus Christ is the perfect communication, the perfect message of God because he is God incarnate, God taking on flesh, dwelling among his creation, uh, dwelling among human beings to reveal himself more completely and more perfectly, more fully. God has made himself known. He wants to be known. From the beginning of 
human history to this very moment, God is a God who reveals himself, who makes himself known that the works of his hands, his creatures, his image bearers, human beings would turn to him and worship him and follow him. And yet, like Saul, our normal proclivity, our our normal bent is to assume that God has not spoken, to assume that God has not revealed himself, and so to decide that we can speak on behalf of God, that we don't need a prophet, that we don't need God's word. Jesus speaks uh, in Mark chapter 4. You don't have to turn it if you don't want to, but you can if you want to. Uh, I invite you to. Uh, Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a, a parable, famous parable. Uh, but it's also, if you take it in, it is a terrifying parable. And he speaks about the Word of God and how the Word of God goes out among human beings. And said again, he began, he began to teach beside the sea. Speaking of Jesus, he said, a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat on the sea and a whole crowd beside the sea on the land. He began teaching them many things and parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And at, not, a, not thread and needle, but sowing seed. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, his disciples are confused about this, and they ask him for an explanation. He explains, he says, look, God sends his word out like a farmer scatters seed. But some places that seed lands, the seed does not grow. Some human hearts simply do not wind up growing seed. If it lands on good soil, it produces a crop. You know how you know it's good soil? Because the the seed embeds in the soil and the roots grow down deep and the plant grows up. And you know what good plants do? They produce flowers and buds and more seeds and those seeds go out and they produce more plants. That's what the Word of God does when it takes root. But not all seed falls on soil like that. Some seed falls on a weedy soil that, that Jesus describes as like the cares of this world and um, money and wealth and career and impressing other people chokes out the desire to hear God's word. Some, some seed falls on uh, rocky soil where the hardships of life and persecution and the difficulties of following Christ cause it to wither. And some seed falls on the path where it doesn't even have a chance to start growing because birds come and eat it right up. Which Jesus describes as essentially Satan coming and taking the word of God straight out of the heart. That's what happened to Saul. 
in 1 Samuel 13. The Word of God, as represented by the prophet Samuel, was ripped from his life because his heart was too hard to hear. There does become a point. God had been faithful and patient with with Samuel for a long, or with Saul for a long time. But there can become a point where the word of God, if it does not take root, can be ripped from your life. And so the stakes are critical. But God did not abandon his people. He didn't abandon his people in chapter 8 or 9 or 10, 11 or 12. And as we're going to see, God has not yet abandoned his people in chapter 13. He may be rejecting Saul as king, but he's not rejecting his people. Why? Because God is a forgiving God who forgives our rebellion. He came in the person of Christ. He took on flesh. He lived among us. And he suffered in every way like us. He was tempted to rebel in every way like us. He was tempted to rebel as Saul was tempted to rebel. He was tempted to rebel even as you're tempted to rebel. And yet, he chose not to. He died on a cross so that rebels like you and me might be forgiven for the times that we have rejected God's word and tried to make our own path so that we need not be destroyed by our ignorance and by our arrogance, but we might be saved by Christ's humility. So there is hope for those of us who have gone the way of Saul, who have tried to make a path to God on our own terms. But there's also a warning in the life of Saul that there sometimes comes a point where it may be too late to turn around. And so if you count yourself in a number that has ignored God's word, that has ignored God's revelation, that has ignored who God has said he is, ignored the fact that he has revealed himself and shown himself and made himself known and tried to follow him in your own way, tried to be a good person by your own metric, by your own standards, and realize that you have fallen short there is a Savior who can rescue you from that before it is too late. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the times that we have tried to forget who you are, where we have tried to follow you on our terms instead of yours. 
Thank you for the times that you have been faithful to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness to you. Hold us fast, Lord, that even in our unfaithfulness we would not ever deny you. And with those who have made a life of trying to please you on their own terms, thinking that they knew better than you what you desired. We pray, Father, that you would humble them to find the forgiveness and peace that's in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you're willing and able, to stand and sing praises to that Christ. <laughs>